yesterday was Rav Kook's Yerzeit. But the way it works by Tzadikim is that, like Karbonos, because the Gemara says that the death of a Tzadik is like a Korban. And in the same way that Karbonos have an unusual halacha attached to them, all of Jewish law, the night precedes the day. So Shabbos begins at sunset. Really, it's but at sunset. That's when Shabbos begins, and we enter into the seventh day, and then Shabbos is the night and the day. When it comes to karbonos, when a person brings a karbon on a Tuesday morning, the fats and the limbs of that karbon are allowed to be burned all the way through Tuesday night up until Wednesday morning, meaning it follows in the order of day followed by night. And so the Gemara says that when tzaddikim die, it has the same atoning effect like a korban. And so therefore, in many communities, the yurtzeit of a tzaddik is actually observed primarily in the day going into the following night, meaning the night that, that follows after the tzaddik's passing is also considered part of the perhaps ikr hiskashras to the tzaddik. And so I was thinking that even though we don't normally, maybe we'll see if we're starting a new trend, we don't normally begin with a nigin, but we know that the korbanos were accompanied by song. And what better way to begin this evening than to begin with a song that Rav Kook himself composed to honor the tzaddik, to honor his yurtzeit. And this particular song that Rav Kook composed, you recall that Rav Kook passed away shortly before Eretz Yisrael became a Sovereign nation. Sovereign nation, thank you for the words. I was going to say proper, but that's not. We were a proper nation already for many, many years before that. But we became a sovereign nation, returned to our land with sovereignty over our own land. And Rav Cook wanted very much that there should be a national anthem. And we know that we have a national anthem, which is a very beautiful national anthem. But Rav Cook, had he had it his way, would have had a different national anthem. And this is the niggin that he wrote that he hoped one day would be the national anthem of the, of the, of the, of Eretz Yisrael. This would be our national anthem. And he wrote a poem, it's called Ha'emuna, the faith, which is like Hatikva, but it's Ha'emuna. And it has a beautiful nigin to it, and it's just four, four paragraphs.
So our learning this evening should be as chus for Rafu Shalema for Kolchol Yisrael Basocham Paula Basmaira Sara Ora Basara Aaron Ben Esther Gittel and like we said Kol Chole Amenu we ended last time with just a few lines left in the introduction in the Hakdama where Rav Kook is about to describe how frightened he is to enter into this pursuit and then we actually begin what many would consider the magnum opus of Rav Kook, the, the gift that he gives to the world above and beyond all the other gifts that he gave us. Because of the way that he speaks about what it is that he wants to give us, we get the sense that this tzaddik, that Rav Kook, saw this as one of the primary reasons he was sent to the world, to bring us this Igeris HaTshuva, which is the first three prakim of Oras HaTshuva. And he's afraid to, to give it to us, not only because he understands how potent tshuva medicine is, properly understanding what tshuva is, but perhaps because he understood that in giving us this secret of tshuva, he was fulfilling his life's mission a life which he loved. Rav Kook was in love with this world and didn't want to leave this world. He understood so deeply that this world is not a stira to the world to come and that it's possible to even live in both of those worlds simultaneously. The great blessing that the sages would give each other, that the Chacham would give each other, the Tzadikim would give each other, you should see your world to come in this world, to be able to experience the world to come in this world and not to see them as a stira, which is really what Rav Kook is going to begin his Sefer with that the body and the soul are two friends and they're not fighting with each other. They shouldn't be. And so Rav Kook understood that by giving us this gift, he would be giving us perhaps his life's work, uh, at which point he would be called back to his heavenly abode and would have to leave 
this blessed world behind. And Sarah of Cook writes, just to finish these last few lines, on the one hand, like we spoke about last week, Rav Cook said that my entire being is thrust towards speaking about this Indian of tshuva, to speak to the world about this mysterious thing called recalibration, the recalibration of the body and the soul, of the nation and of the individual. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm kind of, I recoil in my thoughts. Am I fit to speak about this matter of tshuva? Who spoke about tshuva before me? The Nevi'im spoke about tshuva, the greatest of our, of our people. And who am I, said Rav Kook, to speak about the need of tshuva? And I can tell you that if Rav Kook felt that way, we feel a thousand times more so. The most pure and holy prophets and sages. The greatest, most pious amongst us. How could I dare to thrust my head into their holy assembly? But there is no inner weakness. There is no excuse. There is no fear. There is no anxiety that could possibly hold me back from fulfilling this inner will. I understand that this is my calling to the world to teach this book, this Igeris Atshuva, and to present this to the world. A, because Hashem chose me to do it. And B, because we're at such a point in history, and we spoke about this maybe two, three weeks ago, we're at such a point in history that there is a need for this so badly, the need for tshuva burns so badly in the world that at all costs I must bring it to the world. Whenever I read this introduction of Rav Kook, I'm always reminded of a mashal that the Chafetz Chaim gave. The Chafetz Chaim and Rav Kook were fond of each other. The Chafetz Chaim once stood up and tore Korea because someone spoke poorly about Rav Kook in his presence. And the Chafetz Chaim had deep respect for Rav Kook. And the Chafetz Chaim once said the following mashal. In fact, he said this at the first uh, Aguda convention, at the first Kinesia of the Aguda. He got up to talk about how important it is to do what Rav Kook was doing, to go and to reach out to our brothers and sisters and to teach them and to, with open arms, not to shame them, but to, with open arms to come and to ask them to return and to say that we have so much that we've done wrong that is obviously making you want to go away from Judaism. And like Rav Kook himself said in one place, in one of his uh, writings, Rav Kook said that in the, in the last generation, it's not that people will go away from Torah. Listen carefully to this line. It's not that people will go away from Torah because it'll be too hard. In the past, maybe that's the way that it was. In the past, people used to go away from Torah because the Torah was so lofty and demanded so much of us that we couldn't, but rather because Torah will become low in people's eyes. It's not that the Torah will be too high for people to, to, to live it, but the Torah will become low in people's eyes. They say, we have better systems of morality because they'll see that people are not, they're not living the ideal that the Torah is trying to give and they'll be turned off from it. And so the Chavetz Chaim said that we have to go out and we have to do something about this. We have to return the Torah to its pristine form and to give it back to the people so that they'll want it back. So Rav Kook got down from his pulpit. I'm sorry, the, the Chavetz Chaim got down from his pulpit and he saw that people were talking amongst themselves. Who are we? After all, doesn't the Gemara say first a person should adorn themselves and then other? We have so many problems ourselves. How should we? These were very holy people. These were not small people. And the Chavetz Chaim simply turned back around, got back on the pulpit, and said, once upon a time, there was a king 
who visited one of the towns that was under his control in his kingdom. And when he came to the town, they knew the king was coming, and they, the people in this town made a big feast for the king. And they prepared all the most amazing delicacies, and they served the most amazing drinks. Something happened that when they were serving the simple, they had wine and they had you know, fine, all the fine foods you could imagine, but somehow the water in that town had become almost toxic. And they figured water is water. What do you have to prepare water? So they took water, they put it in the pitchers. And the king, in the middle of the meal, at some point picked up one of the pitchers of water, poured himself a drink, or perhaps it was a king, someone else poured him the drink, and he started drinking the water and he spit it out. He said, oh, this is disgusting. This water... He had someone test the water. They saw that the water was toxic. And the king said, I'm making a decree here and now that anybody who's going to use water, I, I'm a benevolent king. I don't want people to get sick. I love my people. Anybody who's going to use this water in this town has to boil the water before they, before they use it. A few weeks later, Chaps Chaim said, a few weeks later, this king heard that this town burnt down to the ground. Towns in the olden days were built out of wood. There was a fire burnt down to the ground. And when he sent one of his officers to find out what happened, he found out that the townspeople, when the fire broke out, started trying to put out the fire, but then they said, wait a minute, the king made a decree, you can't use the water unless you boil it first. So they started boiling up the water, and by the time the water was boiling, they put a little bit on the fire, but the fire was raging out of control. They boil up a little bit more water, and it was raging out of control until finally the entire town burnt down. The king said, you fools. He said, when I said that you're not allowed to use the water without boiling at first, I was talking about if you're going to drink it. But if there's a fire to put out, you put it out with whatever water you have. And the Chavetz Chaim said, when the Gemara says that first you should adorn yourself and make sure that you're fitting to talk about certain things and to be machzer people to tshuva, that's talking about where we're talking about a regular time when we're talking about drinking the water as a luxury. But when there's a fire burning in the world and people are being consumed by this raging fire, Anybody who knows anything can throw anything they have at the fire. And so even though Rav Kook says, perhaps I don't feel that I'm worthy for this, and certainly I can say a thousand times more, and I'm sure we all feel the same way, that we don't feel worthy of being part of a chabura of people who are learning together how to bring this medicine to the world. But there's a fire raging in the world, says Rav Kook. And therefore, lo tuchal kol chulsha ba'olam the There is no weakness, no fear in the world that could hold me back from this inner demand. I must. I have no choice but to speak about the matter of tshuva. And dafka, I must go into its literary elements to write poems about tshuva and to explain step by step how to bring tshuva to the world. In order to explain its inner content, to our generation, and to actualize it, to make it gashmi in the world, to make it physical in the world, something you can hold on to. In the life of the individual and in the life of the nation. And with that, we begin the Sefer Ursa Tshuva. And so, Rabbi Nachman said before you set out on a journey, you should throw everything into Hashem's hand, and what better way to throw everything into Hashem's hand than to say that everything is in accordance with His will. So, Baruch Adonai. Eloheinu melech ha'olam, shahakol mi'abidvaro. Perak Aleph. Tshuva tivis emunis sichlis. To the best of my knowledge, there is no safer in the world 
that speaks about the concept of tshuva tivis. We have the Rambam, and we have Psukim, and we have Maimre Chazal, that speak about the importance of keeping the healthy, a healthy body. And, but the way that Rav Kook speaks about the natural tshuva that must take place as almost a prerequisite to our being over the Hashem. If we want to be over the Hashem, our bodies and the body of the nation needs to be healthy. So Rav Kook writes, We find that tshuva could be split into three different avenues. And tonight we're only going to speak about the first of them. Next week we'll speak about the second and then the third. Tshuva tivis, the first avenue of tshuva, the first area of tshuva that needs to be first explained and then actualized, is tshuva tivis, natural tshuva. Natural tshuva has a physical component and a spiritual component, as we'll see in a moment. Then there is tshuva emunit, tshuva emunis, which means tshuva that comes from faith. Not something which is visceral, not something that happens automatically. Tshuva tivis, as we'll speak about in a moment, is a tshuva that is embedded inside of our being, whether we want it to or not. To give you a very simple example, we'll get there in a moment. It's that feeling you get after you've eaten too much. That your body is naturally sending you a message without you having to do anything. It's not a matter of faith. It's not a matter of tshuva sikhlis, which is the third category. It's not something you have to learn about in a book. From the time that you're a young child and you ate too much on your first simchas Torah from the candy bags, you learned what tshuva tivis is. At least tshuva tivis chumris what physical, natural tshuva is. It's the body's feeling that I've ingested too much of something or I haven't gotten enough sleep. And therefore, the body automatically and naturally seeks to correct itself. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, specifically the physical aspect of tshuva tivis. Tshuva tivis yesh shnei chalakim. There are two sections, there are two parts to Tshuva tivis, to the natural tshuva. There is, as I said a moment ago, tshuva tivis gufonis. There is the body natural tshuva that takes place. There's the recalibration of the body that happens naturally. And there is tshuva tivis nafshis. There is the soul's natural recalibration, which is not so dissimilar to the experience that we've all experienced of eating too much sugar or getting too hyped up on caffeine and feeling the body shake. It's not so different then the feeling, you know, there's a, one of the great poets and Bali Tshuva of our generation lives actually right down the block, not even, right across the street. His name is Eviatar Banai. And um, he just put out a new album. And one of the songs on the album, which is a super heavy song, I mean, all his songs are very heavy. He has a song that goes through various experiences of this Tshuva Tivis Ruchanis that he experienced in his life. The first one he talks about how he leaves it ambiguous, but the first time he was alone in his house, his parents left him alone in the house, and all of a sudden he was overcome with something, and he did something that he wasn't proud of, and he was filled with this. And the chorus of the song is Ima Koevli. That natural, ima koevli, ima, like mother, this natural base instinct of something hurts, something hurts me. 
Dafka when he was alone by himself, when he didn't, the first time that he, I think the, the, the second stanza, he was, he was in, if I recall the words correctly, he was in ninth grade, Banim Banot, and he found out that his girlfriend cheated on him. Ima Koevli. You know, there's something, something hurts that there's an injustice in the world. Why? Why should that hurt? There were some Jewish philosophers who said that the fact that we're upset when something is unjust is proof enough of the existence of the soul. Why should it bother you? Why should a human being be bothered when there's injustice in the world? Forget when you do it. When someone does to you, why are you bothered when somebody cuts you off in traffic? The zebra doesn't turn around to the lion and say, you know, this is really uncivilized when he's, he stops and he accepts his fate. By a human being, there's a certain tivist, there's a certain sense of justice that exists in the world. And so this great poet who lives across the street, Evyatar, was explaining that that natural feeling of, I had this person I was in a relationship with, and they stabbed me in the back. And that demands recalibration. So we're not up to tshuva tivis ruchanes yet, but that same experience of tshuva tivis ruchanes, nafshis, that we understand exists. It's a soul-level, visceral reaction to injustice in the world. So now Rav Cook is going to talk about this on the level of, of the body. Now, there's two ways to think about this. One way to think about this is as a general sort of introduction to the mitzvah of v'nishmartem ma'odis nafsha seichem. My intention tonight is not to give a shir on this very important topic of v'nishmartem ma'odis nafsha seichem and the halachic implications of that, what a person is allowed to do and not allowed to do, what type of risks is a person allowed to take in this world, what are the kind of guidelines for how does a person navigate their own personal health, how do we relate to the ownership of the body, these are all good and interesting halachic questions. But for Rav Kook, well, maybe we'll talk about that for a few minutes before we jump in, but for Rav Kook, Rav Kook is more interested in that natural feeling that the body has when things are not aligned. This natural wake-up call that the body says, you have not been sleeping properly. You have not been eating properly. You have not been taking care of yourself properly. And this is something that a person can go, just like with the soul level, a person can go many years person can go many years. One of the most eye-opening experiences of my own personal journey to health when I had my medical journey two years ago was that I realized together with my body becoming sick and then ultimately healing is that once my body became very, very ill, for those watching along at home who aren't aware, so I had T-cell lymphoma, and once my body became very sick and then healed itself, together, and we spoke about this once in the context of tshuva, that sometimes a person will do a very severe type of, you know, make a, a really severe type of error in judgment spiritually, because there are small, minor things in their spiritual life that they're not attending to, and once they fix that big thing, together with it, they'll do a real cheshbon and nefesh, and they'll start to fix those minor things as well. And if Hashem would have just let you keep going with those minor things, you never would have gotten to fixing those minor things. So I don't, I don't know how Hashem works, and I'm not here to be Hashem's lawyer. That's not my job. Hard enough to be my own lawyer. So when I got, but I can tell you that when I got better, when my body started to heal itself, all these things that I started to notice, and I would say that as a person who professionally is invested in you know, uh, Judaism on some level, both in terms of my role as a teacher, 
and in se several other different areas of my life, I'm a professional Jew. You know, I would be so whether I received the salary for teaching or not. It's just that, that's, that's the, the DNA Hashem put into me. And as a result of that, I realized so quickly that there were all these areas in my honoring and taking care of my body that I was completely overlooking. I wasn't drinking nearly enough water. I wasn't eating. I was eating healthy, but I wasn't eating like right for my body. I would go, I wouldn't eat breakfast and then like I would get to lunch and like maybe I would, I would regularly just pass out on the couch in my clothing, wake up, you know, change and go the next day. Super not healthy. None of these things are healthy. We read these stories about tzaddikim and far be it from me to judge. I'm not here to judge tzaddikim. Tzaddikim who, you know, would pass out when they were trying to make their way to their beds and they would say, I miscalculated because I was giving. On the one hand, there's something very beautiful about that. I give every ounce of strength to Torah learning. Like the story of one of the tzaddikim whose name I won't say right now, lest it be conceived of as Lashon Hara. And it's normally a story that we say as kind of like a... Um, you know, we say it as like a, some, it's a moment of pride for our tzaddikim that one of the tzaddikim was once lying on his bed, a pillow underneath his feet. And somebody walked into the room and said, why is the pillow under your feet? Put it under your head. He said, if I had enough energy to put the pillow under my head, I'd still be learning. So we think of, we somehow hear these stories and they get put in the biographies as, as if these are. On the other hand, we all know that those same tzaddikim, oftentimes when they got older and had health problems, all regretted that they treated their body like that. And that they would have to go on these... There were tzaddikim who had to go years, more than, a, more than 12 months, without learning Torah, period. Because doctors said, if you learn Torah, the investiture that you put into learning Torah, it will kill you. And they did it, too. That's, that's real tzidkus. These people who were kulo, their entire being was in Torah, they, would go a ye, they could go more than a year without learning. They would sometimes sit with a book open in front of them, pretending like they were learning, so as not to be... The Chavetz Chaim himself... Chavetz Chaim himself, in the Sefer Madriga Sa'adam, it, it brings one of the footnotes that the Chavetz Chaim himself was instructed by a doctor that for a year straight he wasn't allowed to learn Torah, and he said, I'm afraid of there being a Chil Hashem. People see me just kind of like, you know, sitting and playing checkers. Chavetz Chaim is not like you and me. So can I sit with a book open? And he would sit with a book open without looking in and not, without learning Torah, and he said, I regret that I, that I didn't calibrate like that. But eventually it catches up to you. It catches up to all of us. And so one of the things that I saw when I was getting better is that all of a sudden I started to treat my body better and more, I had more respect for my body. And that's such an important thing. And so let's jump right into the, to the text here. You said to me once, when we did the podcast about your healing, the, the amount of chemistry that is inside. I think that was part of it, right? I started to, I had to take some of these pills to offset the the chemicals that they were using to, to heal me. So I had to take other medicine to bolster my heart against any of the side effects of these medicines. And, and I recognized how important it is that the body be in a healthy state because my whole life I just took it for granted that it was, I was just chugging along. But thank God I learned a lesson when I was young. Exercise is so important. So if Cook says, Hagufanis soveves is kol haaveros neged chukiateva. Tshuva gufanis relates to Anything which is an avera, listen to this lashon, any avera, any transgression against the laws of nature. Nature has laws. And those laws are built into the Torah. Like Rav Tzadik HaKoyin of Lublin said, Hashem made two books. One of them is called the Torah, and one of them is called the world. 
And these two books are one and the same. They, have, they come from the same place. Like the Maharal writes in a number of places, in the beginning of the Sefer Nesivas Olam, and in the, in the middle of the, towards the beginning of the Sefer Teferis Yisrael, the Torah is the roadmap of the world. Like the Magid of Mezrich, one time, said to his son, who was involved in all these fastings, and like Rav Kook himself said, to his dear friend and student, Rav Yaakov Moshe Charlap, but the Magid said it very cleverly, the Magid said, when you are not careful with the body, and there is a small hole in the body, it will eventually lead to a very large hole in the soul. That's what he said to his son. He said, you're fasting, and I know you think this is very holy. They used to call the Magid of Mezrich's son the Malach, the Malach, the angel, because of the amount of fasting that he would do and the amount of just being completely disassociated from this worldliness. And the Magid said to him, he said, you're going to cause holes in your body, weakness in your body, and it's going to lead to big holes in your neshama. And so you need to be careful. You are committing a virus against your body. Hamusr Torah. Gufanis, this tshuva gufanis, means when you are acting against your body, against the will of nature, ethics, and the Torah itself. Like I said before. In fact, just this morning, coincidentally, I was looking at a tshuva from the Shevet Halevi. Shevet Halevi, one of the great poskim of our generation. And in the third volume, the Shevet Halevi has a tshuva where he talks about Sakanas Nefashos. Just this morning, happened to look at it. Totally didn't realize that this was uh, relevant to tonight's shir. And he begins by saying that we find in the Torah two different mitzvos that relate to watching our health. There's one mitzvah which is very specific. That's the mitzvah of makeh. The mitzvah of makeh is the mitzvah to build a fence around your roof to make sure that nobody falls off. And all of the si'ifim, um, all of the sub-laws that come as a result of that, things that we need to do in order to make sure that we don't cause harm to ourselves or others. The mitzvah of makeh. But then there's this, more, that, and that's a very specific kind of set of laws, and that's found in the post There's a second law, which I mentioned before, you shall greatly guard your soul. And that, as opposed to the mitzvah of makeh, which is a positive commandment, you must proactively do this positive commandment, which means to build a fence, do this thing. Vinishmartem is a losase. It's preventative. You must make sure not to do this. And Rav Vosner quotes from the Ramban in his Chidushim of Mesech Chulin that anytime you have the word shimor in the Torah, which involves some sort of negative commandment, something you must ensure not to do, it means bivados. It means you must make absolutely sure of this thing. In other words, whereas the mitzvah of makeh is a mitzvah that there is X number of things that I must do. Once I've done those things, I'm, I'm done. But then the Torah comes along and says, yes, there are physical things you must do, but then there is this numinous, mysterious, overarching, almost impossible to fully embrace mitzvah, which means you must make absolutely certain, almost to the point of neurosis, not ad right there, but not quite getting there, that you are not doing anything to harm your body because your body is so precious to Hashem. When a person goes against the body, they are going against nature, ethics, and against the Torah. Your body is something which is not yours and is 
both subject to your individual relationship with the Torah and also the klali. I mean, we think about this in, in terms of what we've been experiencing the past little bit in terms of following certain regulations. and Yeah, it's been confusing, for sure. And Rav Cook is going to talk about that as well. The bilbul of not having clear medicine yet. And if it's true in our day, Rav Cook's day, they were just getting started with this. Skip line. Any time a person sins against the body, eventually it leads to pain and sickness. There is so much. There's so much that the individual and the and the collective both of Am Yisrael and also the world at large is being sovel, has to, has to bear the burden of you know, these terrible mistakes of judgment against, against the body. And after, so this is the truva part, and after we realize that smoking may cure tuberculosis, or at least they thought so, but it does much worse things for the body, or after a person realizes that this particular food is not so healthy, or this particular practice is not so healthy, or here is the amount exact of exercise that a person needs to get every single week in order to maintain health. There has been a downgrade in their life where they feel, after a certain point, you know, this per- and each person has their own nekudos. Some people can tolerate this and can't tolerate that. But once a person comes to the recognition that this activity that I've been doing, not getting enough sleep, not drinking enough water, not eating the right foods that are fit for my body, not taking care or honoring my body, once a person recognizes it, he must and he automatically begins to feel something is wrong here and I need to fix it. I must return to the natural way of life. I have to return to natural living. I have to guard these laws of nature. Sometimes this is, Baruch Hashem, we live in such a beautiful little town over here where we have access to so much, tree, you know, so many trees and we have plenty of virtue to go around. You know, we have a beautiful forest. And, but if you've ever experienced being in a city for a, protract, you know, for a long period of time, and you haven't gotten back to nature, there's this really intense feeling. You get it a little bit every time, you know, Yerushalayim, Sachakol is a city. It's the most beautiful city in the world, but it's a city. And when you leave and you get into the north a little bit and you start to breathe that air, there's, a something, there's something natural about it. There's something that the body demands, these various different, and that's why we're lucky to live in a land where within a half hour you could be snow, desert, ocean, forest, we got it all within a half hour. Until you begin to return to life. You return to that way that it was supposed to be and to the freshness of a life being used in a proper way. So this is what we said before. Now Rav Kook is going to speak a little bit about medicine. Rav Kook says that the discipline of medicine is... Slow, we're getting, you know, we're beginning, but it's, this is part of tshuva. No, and this is what I meant when I said no one else writes like this before of Cook. This is a huge chiddush. 
Rav Kook says the development of medicine. I once had a thought. I once had a thought that um, maybe this is, I hope it's not kfira. I wouldn't say it if I thought it was kfira. Maybe this is silly or maybe you won't understand what I'm saying or maybe I won't say it clearly. And I hope that nobody thinks chas v'shalom that I'm saying this in, in a callous way either because it's a very serious matter. I once had a thought and, and stuck with it for a while and really like meditated on it. That it could be that we'll get to a point in medicine and in understanding how the human body works and we're getting there more and more. I mean, people live longer now than before. We'll get to a point where a person can create synthetic hearts and synthetic synapses that help the brain to maintain a certain functionality until we get to an old age and that we'll be able to replace the limbs and all these. It's, I mean, this is not the stuff of sci-fi anymore. I once thought that we could, perhaps, one understanding of the eternal life of Olam Haba, Bonagid, we'll call it, is that we'll get to a place where the body will be able to be regenerated and replaced to such a point where the only thing that will cause the secession of life is not living right. In the sense that, and this is where I want to be careful how I say this, because I mean this with great respect, and there's an element of, of fear in, in saying it this way, that we'll get to a place where medicine allows a person to live forever if they would want to, but that that philosophical quandary of life of, well, what is this for? Is there meaning to my life? Is the only thing that will decide whether or not a person wants to continue updating and upgrading their life. Because if you're living in a life where this is intrinsically meaningful, I have meaning. There's a goal. The goal is not just to consume a meal so that I can have another day, so that I can consume another meal. But that this life itself is meaningful. It's not so far-fetched to imagine that there's a world where the only way out of this world is some form of, I'm hesitating to, to use the word, of taking one's own life or just simply not upgrading, not continuing to use the medicine that's available because your life is meaningless, Khalila. And so Rav Kook here is about to speak about the place of medicine and how we're moving towards this world where medicine is able to fix all these different problems. And we're in this world, on some level, it's not perfect, and there's certainly a lot that we still need to understand about the body and how it operates. But every year, every 10 years, and we shudder to think where we'll be in 100 years from now in terms of understanding the body, that what we will need is meaning, not chuva gufanis is the first step. After that, it's, so now what are we living for? And that's what we're, go- that's what we're going towards. But for Rav Kook, it's a very real step. Because if I could tell you, when you're younger, you think, I want to live forever. But as soon as you start to think philosophically, well, what is this about? What a, you know. So then, in a certain sense, tshuva ruchonis depends on that first step of, if you could live forever, what would you do? If I gave you all the money and all the resources that you could live forever and do whatever you wanted, well, then what are you doing? What are we doing? And so for Rav Kook, this is a funny word, hamedetsinia, medicine. It's true that medicine now is beginning to really tumult in this a lot. 
We're really beginning to pick up speed and trying to understand how does the body operate and what's good for the body. Nutrition. And the real tzaddikim understood, the Rambam wrote in Mor Nebuchim, that it's the way of the ignorant fools to think that exercising and playing ball and boxing, I think, is one of the examples that he gives, and uh, kind of like learning how to breathe properly, this is the way of the ignorant. But the Rabbanim, the Chachamim, understood that this is the way of the wise. So medicine is osik in this harve. But certainly we have not achieved a proper understanding of this, a complete fixing in this area. We have not answered all of the questions and the answers. And it's interesting also. It's a crazy thing. I, you know, I, don't, I hope I'm not breaching any HIPAA laws, but in the same way that I was sick two years ago, my brother was sick four or five years ago. Different thing. And the difference between the medicine, the upgrades, same trum of sickness, the difference between the upgrades and those, you know, the medicines that are counter the anti-nausea medicines, and these, it's unbelievable. Different, better, upgraded. Upgraded. Because when you're getting a particular type of medicine and that causes a side effect, then they need to create the side effect for that side effect for that side effect, you know, medicine. Medicines on top of medicines until they finally create the right type of medicine that this is going to exactly do what it's supposed to do, laser pointed at the problem without causing other problems. And so that's where Cook is referring to this as she'elos uchuvos. Questions and answers in medicine, in the sense that you have a problem, this is not working, well, I'm going to do this to fix the problem. But that causes another problem. Until you could finally resolve the issue at the core so that you'll be able to... And it's an amazing thing. We see this, how the world is developed. I'm, I'm particularly interested in this. As a, as a teacher, I, I learn a lot of... I read a lot of psychology books. And... Um, it's amazing to see the trend that's even psychology, understanding the mind, which is also part of medicine. The, the shift from standard psychology, which up until 15, maximum 20 years ago, was all focused on you have a problem, so let's analyze you, right? The fathers of analytical psychology, Freud and Jung, Adler, all these psychologists would come and they would analyze you and figure out here is the problem that led to this. But now, and the same thing is true in, in, I would say, Gufani medicine as well, the whole focus is on positive psychology. How can, what, not how do we solve problems, but how do we create the mechanisms and the systems that a person can flourish before they get into trouble? Or how do we support health before you get into trouble? What are the medicines and the exercises that you should be, the vitamins, the food intake that you should be ingesting and, and operating upon these particular set of axioms in order to make sure that your body is running smoothly before you get into trouble. That's even a further advancement in the world of medicine. Sheilo suchuvos. Is that like sumera Nachon, nachon ma'od. That's exactly a parallel, a, a parallel of sumera v'asetov. It used to be much more. That the, and, and this is how the, the soul operates, and this is how the... First, you stop doing the bad things. Then you start to, a little bit, figure out how we can make this work even more smoothly. A little bit further. Hamedetsinia osek beze omnam harbe, avalonishtachala kefia nira dain, lonimza dain pitoron, hanachon, the cold shales, the chuvas agufonis. We haven't found the answers to all the answers and the questions of the body. 
עד כמה שיש בגבול השחיים להחזיר לאדם את כל האבוד ממנו מצד חטאים, מהר שיא הגוף וכוח עושיו. In here you hear both the complaint of Rav Kook that we haven't, not the complaint, that just the, you know, calling a spade a spade that we haven't gotten there yet, and also the hopefulness that we will one day get to this point. Rav Kook says we haven't figured out necessarily yet how to return that which has been lost based on the transgressions against the body. There are certain things that we haven't, we don't know how to fix. We don't know how to regenerate an arm yet. We have things that approximate an arm. We don't know how, if a person has reached a certain state of ruining their lungs through ingesting certain toxins directly through their mouth, we don't know exactly how to wash it clean yet. One day we will. It seems like this particular avenue of tshuva, this particular aspect of tshuva, is still very much tluya v'omid. It's still hanging in the balance. Still trying to figure out what to do. More so than this particular, this first avenue of tshuva, which is the tshuva of the guf, we still have to speak about the chilek of tshuva ruchanis tivis, this natural spiritual tshuva that's not about the body, that's more about the soul. And we also have to speak about emunis and sikhlis. But just before we finish for today, I just wanted to show you one last little place because it happens to be that I'm simultaneously, which is not necessarily a bad idea, not necessarily a great idea, I'm simultaneously studying oros tshuva and oros Torah. So... In the beginning of the Sefer Orsa Torah, and we'll, we'll close with this, Rav Kook talks about the necessity of Torah being fulfilled in its totality, being related to the Jewish people's return to Eretz Yisrael. Chashav Nakuda to end with, especially Rav Kook's Yerzeit. Rav Kook writes that in order for the Torah Shabal Peh to be completely revealed in the world for it to do what it's supposed to do. It's important that the Jewish people be in Eretz Yisrael with the entire body of Eretz Yisrael being strong. This is Perak Aleph Oz Gimel. Yenikas Torah Shalapeh hi begnuzam in ha-shamayim v'giloi ba'aretz. The theoretical ideal Torah of the oral law, which seeks to express itself down here, Ba'aretz, from the Shamayim, Galuya Ba'aretz, Tzricha Eretz Yisrael Yosbnuya, it needs the land to be built. In the same way that if a person wants to do Tshuva Ruchonis, which we'll get to next week, you want to do spiritual Tshuva, you want to stop doing the things that we shouldn't be doing that are sins against the soul, there needs to first be a healthy body. For Torah to express itself properly, the land of Israel, just like the body of each Israelite, needs to be built up. Arranged in all of its orders. Mikdash umalchus, with a temple and with a monarchy. Kahuna unavua, with the priestly caste in order, doing their thing. The Nevi'im doing their thing. Shoftim vishotrim, it's parsha. Shoftim vishotrim, with a proper police force with proper judges, 
all of their various different tactics and all the different things that are necessary in order to have a functioning society. Only then will the Torah be alive. Because in order for there to be a tshuva that we can actually speak about, which is what we'll talk about next week, that is natural, where the body starts to say, okay, there's a hierarchy of needs that's been met. My body is okay. Now we can get onto higher order matters, like taking care of the soul. You know, the Boston Rebbe said, I saw this actually in Rav Gerzi's Sefer. Rav Gerzi uh, wrote, has a little contrast about the Arba Yisodos Pilsna, the four Yisodos of uh, Rav Yoshua Gerzi that he received from his Rebbe, the four different Yisodos of what it means to, to have a healthy Judaism, the first of which is physical health, physical and financial health, corresponds to the Yud of Hashem's name. Then there's the Hei, the Vav, and the, and the final Hei. The Yud of Hashem's name corresponds to physical and financial health, the physical taking care. So he quotes in that little kuntras, he quotes from the, he once heard from the Boston Rebbe, that the Boston Rebbe said that there's a Medrash Chazal that says that when Hashem gave the Torah, all of the ailments of the bodies of the people were all healed at Matan Torah. Everybody got healed. There were anyone who was crippled, anybody who was deaf, anybody who couldn't see, everything got healed by Matan Torah. We normally think of it in this way. We normally think that Hashem gave the Torah, the Torah is magic. The magic of the Torah healed everybody. But Rav Gerzi quoted from the Boston Rebbe that the Boston Rebbe said that Hashem wanted to give us the Torah as a prerequisite for the Torah being able to express itself properly. Just like Rav Cook said, in order for the Torah to be expressed properly, the land of Israel needs to be built up with all of the different things in its proper place. And Hashem said, for the Torah to be expressed properly in the Jewish people, then all of the different kalim of the Jewish people need to be whole as a prerequisite to the Torah. It's not that Hashem giving the Torah healed the Jewish people. Hashem said, if I'm going to give them the Torah, they need to have healthy bodies. That's the first step. Without a healthy body, we can't come to the second and higher order magnitude of tshuva, which is tshuva ruchanis, which Amir Hashem we will deal with next week. Shukoch. Amazing. So many questions. Ask them. So hang on. In the context of what, we, what, what, you, what, you, what Rav Cook said, what you said, it, it, it's not a true statement to say the medicine is just a hishtadlis. And really, it's something... It's, it's actually, you've got to take the paracetamol. There's really nothing to it. It sounds the opposite of what Rav Cook is saying. He said, no, there's something very chashub about medicine. If, if you understand that the body is holy, and that the, the body is holy, I meaning that's a funny thing to say. The body is not evil. The body is not fighting against the soul. That the goal... And this, is, this was a... a, a one of the most harif statements that the Rambam said against the Rambam is that the Rambam suggested, please, the Rambam suggested that the world to come is, uh, is a bodiless world. Tchiyas HaMesim is a preparatory step that leads to the final step where we strip ourselves of our bodies and we are orbs, spiritual orbs, that are able to in, engage in, uh, in sikhlius. And the Ramban lambasted him. Um, and said, chas v'shalom. That's uh, the tchiyas hamesim is the final stage. Meaning, it's the body and soul living together as they were supposed to before Adam ate from Eitzadas. It's a body purged of all of the spiritual and physical toxins so that the two of them are able to 
work in tandem together in order to achieve higher states of perfection. As partners. As partners. As partners. So, okay, the Rambam was pretty chashuv. But I would say here that this is where we find as well the Vilna Gon, that the Vilna Gon writes in his glosses to the Shulchan Aruch, um, he writes, I don't, I'm not sure exactly why this is in the Shulchan Aruch, it's not exactly a halachic statement, but he says that the primary mistake, if we could say that the Rambam made of anything, was that his philosophy was based in Aristotle, I believe he calls it the cursed philosophy of Aristotle, um, and did not uh, sink his teeth into the Kabbalistic doctrine. That if he would have understood that Kabbalah is not about uh, turning the body into something spiritual, it's about taking spirituality and bringing it down into Malchus, into, into the, down here, into the earthiness of this world. Um, which is interesting because it was only very recently that I saw that um, I always had this backwards. We have testimony, we have Eidos, um, I was just reading in the Kamarna Rebbe as a whole Hishtalshus of the Kabbalah, that the Rambam had access to the, to the Zohar. The Rambam had access to the Zohar. He saw the Zohar. Um, the Ramban never did. And the Ramban was the Kabbalist and the Rambam wasn't. The Ramban never had access to the actual manuscript of the Zohar. The Rambam apparently did. And uh, nevertheless, the Ramban was the one who embraced the secret doctrine of the Kabbalah, which in the days of the Ramban, that, the Ramban's Rebbe was the first one to really begin to actually let the cat out of the bag. Um, uh, before that, it was really in a close-knit circle of... Um, and the Rambam had access to the... Ma- and it's interesting because the Rambam, several places, Paskins like the Zohar. That's how we know the Rambam had access to the Zohar. I'll give you one example, then we'll, we'll close up shop for the night. The Rambam, in the laws of um, lighting the menorah, so the Rambam writes something that all the, the Rashba has a, two, three chuvos where he just decimates the Rambam. The Rambam says that there's a mitzvah to light the menorah not only bein like as the sun is setting, which makes a lot of sense, that there should be a menorah when it's getting dark, but there is a mitzvah in the morning when the Kohen walks into the, into the Heichel and sees that the menorah is either completely out or partially out, he should clean out the wicks and relight it again. We don't find that anywhere in the Bavli. We find that three places in the Zohar. The Zohar says that you're supposed to light the menorah at night and also again in the morning. And the Rambam passes. That's only one of five or six different places where the Rambam says something where people say, there's not anywhere in the Bavli. What is he doing? And later, Achronim say, yeah, but it's in the Zohar. And the Rambam had access to the Zohar and he passed him like that halacha. But in terms of the metaphysics of the Zohar, the Kabbalah of the Zohar, the rabbi was a rationalist, and, um, and the girl was not happy about it. So, far be it from me to say the Rambam was wrong, but the notion that the body and the soul are partners, and any fighting between the two of them is only temporary, um, is, 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 that's the Amis. And, and the, the other approaches, um, which speak of the evils of the body, are not speaking of the evils of the body itself, um, are, are either misguided in terms of saying how we approach the body, or probably a, a more appropriate way of saying that is they're talking about allowing the body to be in the driver's seat, right? which is super dangerous. Right? The Mechilas quote Tesla of self-driving cars, you need a, dr- a good driver to drive the, 
that drives the, the car. But maybe we'll get to a place where the two of them will be true partners. In fact, we have such an union. The soul and the body, the soul and the body are partners like a husband and a wife. The body is the, is the feminine and the soul is the masculine. And La'asid Lavo, the Nevi'im already say, that even though there was, I'm not speaking here about uh, something uh, as an ideal, but even though we recognize, um, everybody recognizes, there are either people who say, no, it should stay that way forever, or people are fighting against the, the change of the status quo. We recognize that there was this top-down paternal patriarchy, use whatever buzzword you want to use, kind of like male-dominant because it was a world of, of the body, of, of, of physical might, not the body, but a physical might. And the Nevi'im spoke of a time that refers in the Pasuk as Nekeva Tesoviv Gever, that feminine will rise, the feminine will rise. The moon will not just be receding from the sun, but the moon will be bright like the sun, like we say every, every month by Kiddush HaChodesh. And so there is this feminine, feminine quality of the body which rises to the... Uh, to the occasion of, of meeting together with the soul. You have a big job to do. And, uh, and kind of like retaking control of this, uh, of this enterprise. So the two of them become together. And that's the, the whole nevuah and hope that we have that we speak about of the, the sun and the moon becoming equal partners. The sun and the moon becoming equal partners is very similar to this dynamic of the body and the soul becoming e- equal partners, which is very similar to the... To the really radical notion of Hashem and his creation becoming somewhat equal partners. Hashem was the creator and his creations becoming equal partners this is very much this story of the, of the evolution of the, and, the, and, the, and the, um, the rising of the feminine in the world. And for more on that, you could check out my book, Birth of the Spoken Word, where I wrote um, yeah. quite a bit about that. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da